Please join me in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would open our ears and our minds as we prepare to hear your word. Help us to understand it and its message to us. Amen. The scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake for one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that. Good morning, Middle Street. My name is Stephen Yang, or I go by Stevo, and I want to invite you now to pray for me while I pray for you. Heavenly Father, we ask for your words to bring us life today. I ask that your Holy Spirit would minister to us as only you can. Jesus, we need to see you and your disposition towards us. Father, I pray that as I speak from your word, uh, that I would know your delight for me and that my brothers and sisters here would know that very thing. I ask, Lord, that you would make yourself clear and beautiful and sweet to each of us in, in ways that we need to hear. Uh, maybe even for someone who needs to know you for the first time, I ask that they would hear your loving welcome and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know this by experience, but I'm told that the most difficult part of running a marathon is when you've been running for a while. The adrenaline of starting the race has worn off, and the finish line is still far away. You feel it in your chest, 
in your lungs, in your legs. You're exhausted, nauseous, out of breath. And in that dreadful moment, you realize you're only halfway. It's in that middle mile that your body tells you to quit. Everything physiologically tells you that you're not going to make it. You know that when you're near the finish line, you'll unearth the inspiration to give it all you've got because you know it's almost over. But those who are able to endure the middle mile and endure it well are those who have trained their minds to find that extra push from somewhere, from someone, and to keep going when things get most difficult. Perhaps you find that you're in the middle mile right now. We're juggling too much. We're stretched too thin. We're on the cusp of losing our jobs, or we've been looking for work, and resume after resume, interview after interview, we only seem to hear the same answer, no. We pick up the phone, and we, we hear that a loved one is in the hospital. We are needed now more than ever, but we feel powerless to help. We're angry with God. Our careers are not where they're supposed to be. We were supposed to be married by now, or we're married, and we find that we're even lonelier than before. We feel undermined or unseen. We are in the middle mile. We are absolutely overwhelmed, and we want to give up. Wouldn't it be great when we find ourselves in these moments to find help, to borrow the resolve of a friend, to be strengthened, to be cheered on, encouraged, and to know that we aren't alone? Wouldn't it be great if we could draw strength from somewhere to find resolve to keep going and to finish the race and to finish well. In our passage today, we find our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we find them in the same place where we find ourselves. Jesus is in the middle mile. He is absolutely overwhelmed, and he wants to give up. In our toughest moments, what we need is not some distant bystander to cheer us on from the sidelines, but what we need is for someone to meet us where we are. What we need is someone to join us in our weakness in order to give us strength. So this morning, I want to ask two questions. Two questions. First, how does Jesus meet us in weakness? Second, How does Jesus give us strength? How does Jesus meet us in weakness? And how does Jesus give us strength? First, how does Jesus meet us in weakness? In Mark 14, we find that Jesus is in the garden and he is on his knees. Just before this scene, we found that Jesus was breaking bread with his disciples. He was sharing his final meal before his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal. He broke bread and said, this is my body for you. He gave him the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
And after this meal, the author fast-forwards to Jesus in a garden named Gethsemane, just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was a location that is believed to have been a go-to prayer spot for Jesus and his disciples. But on this night, Jesus only takes a few of his companions, and they witness something that they certainly would never forget. Have you ever seen the face of someone who had the look of absolute fright? Maybe it was after a tragic conversation with a doctor or the realization that a child was lost or some financial investment went south. And no matter how much they might try, there is no way to cover up the fear. There is no way they can paint a smile on their face and pretend everything's okay because their faces say it all. Have you ever seen that face? Three of Jesus' closest companions, Peter, James, and John, saw such a face on Jesus. His face said it all. He didn't look well. They had never seen him like this before. He was stumbling and barely keeping it together. Jesus was staggering. The author uses vivid vocabulary to express some of the most intense emotional language to portray what the disciples must have seen. We are told that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled. He even tells his disciples that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. These words are not hyperbolic. It's clear that Jesus is a wreck. These words describe great alarm, a frantic panic, a deep agony. The word sorrow is the word paralupos. The first part of the word has the Greek root peri, is where we get the word perimeter, meaning around. Jesus is saying, I feel like my soul is surrounded with sorrow. It's all around me. I am stretched to the limit. I am absolutely overwhelmed. One commentator says that these words used in this text refers to someone who shudders in horror, stricken and helpless, in every literal sense of the Greek, scared out of his mind. Ascribing these words to our Lord Jesus have made both followers and skeptics uncomfortable, and understandably so. In our culture, we admire composure. In fact, that's the kind of word you want to use on a resume when applying for a leadership position like CEO. Composure. Composure seems like an attractive word. But what the disciples witnessed in the garden on this night was something utterly different. There was no composure. Instead, we get a picture of Jesus becoming undone. His body is falling apart, literally. The author tells us that he is in such turmoil that he starts to sweat blood. We now know that this is a medical condition that can indeed happen. I'm not medically trained, but I'm told that this is caused when our capillaries burst due to extreme 
extreme stress. Now, what is stressing him up? It is the cup. Now, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, we see him talking about the necessity of the cross, the necessity for the Son of Man to die. The cross is at his very forefront. It's, just, it's at top of mind. Throughout the Gospels, he is walking towards Jerusalem. The Son of Man must be handed over in judgment. The Son of Man must be lifted up on a tree. He knew the task that had been assigned to him from the very beginning. But coming to the brink of this hour, this pending crucifixion, he starts to panic. He is not sure he wants to continue any further. He wants out of the race. He wants to tap out. Jesus is in the middle mile. He is absolutely overwhelmed, and he wants to give up. I think as followers, we can get uncomfortable with this brand of Jesus. If we profess faith in Jesus, then it is very plausible that we almost have an easier time taking for granted his divinity at the cost of minimizing or even neglecting his humanity. You see, we tend to think of Jesus as some ethereal freak of nature, one who is sort of human, but not exactly like us. He's different. We tend to think of stories of Jesus walking on water or healing people or raising Jesus from the dead. We tend to think of Jesus as some alien specimen or phantom who floats and one who is essentially impervious to pain. At least, he's impervious to the sort of pain that we go through. We don't quite know where to place the emotions of Jesus, especially the ones that are strong and the ones that make us uncomfortable. But the Bible tells us that while he was divine, he was able to supply living water and was sinless, he was human too. He was susceptible to weariness, John 4, fatigue, Mark 4, hunger, Mark 11, thirst, John 19. He was subject to temptation, Mark 4. He started off as a fetus, spent time in the womb, was fed by an umbilical cord. He had exactly 46 chromosomes, not more, not less. He was a boy who was circumcised on the eighth day and who depended on his mother for milk and food. His body depended on calories. Like us, he had to learn to crawl and walk and talk. As a son of a carpenter, he had to apprentice and learn the trade himself in order to make a living. He had testosterone. His body released endorphins and dopamine. His mind developed. His body grew. Undoubtedly, his body changed as a teen probably had acne even. He, ex he experienced a wide array of emotions, boiling passion, John 2, 
Sorrow, Isaiah 53. Grief, John 11. Abandonment, Mark 15. Amazement, Luke 7. He sighed and groaned, Mark 7. He wept, John 11. The Bible tells us that the Word became flesh. He took on real flesh and blood. He entered into real space and real time. He wasn't playing make-believe, only pretending to be like one of us, walking around in one of our bodies and putting on a good presentation. His humanity was not somehow absorbed by his human or by his divine nature, making him some sort of God-man hybrid. He was fully manned, and not just human from the neck down, as if he had a human body but a divine mind. He was fully God, 100% of him. He was fully man, 100% of him. His two distinct natures come together in one person where the property of each is preserved. He is 100% God, 100% man, and that adds up to 100%. That's bad math, but good theology. He had to be both if he was to bridge the two sides, and since we could not go up to God, God had to come down to us. He takes on real flesh and blood. He takes on human body and mind. He even takes on a sweaty, dirty, beautiful, waste-excreting body. Here in Gethsemane, he is in the middle mile. He is absolutely overwhelmed and wants to give up. How does Jesus meet us in weakness? He took on real flesh and blood. God came all the way down. How does Jesus give us strength? How does Jesus give us strength? First, we draw strength when we see that Jesus staggered. Jesus staggered. There was, Jesus was so overwhelmed that not once, but three times, he seeks out the company of his friends. Each time, he asks them to watch and pray with him. Watch and pray with me. By this, he is not asking them to be on the lookout for trouble. He knows his betrayer is coming and that his hour to drink the cup is around the corner. What he wants is for the support of his friends. He wants them to be with him, to pray for him, to understand his struggle, to understand his battle, to understand what is happening, what is at stake, what is being asked of him, what is going on. Would you stay up with me? The staggering of Jesus reminds me of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, is approaching the great hour of his cup. 
where he walks to the stone table to die in the place of a son of Adam. And as he walks, two children find Aslan, the great king, staggering. They ask if they can walk with him. I love how C.S. Lewis captures this moment. He says, One of the girls walked on each side of the lion, but how slowly he walked. And his great royal head dropped so that his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently, he stumbled and gave a low moan. Aslan, dear Aslan, said Lucy, what is wrong? Can't you tell us? Are you ill, dear Aslan? asked Susan. No, said Aslan. I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I can feel you are there and let us walk like that. And the girls did what they would never have dared to do without his permission, but what they had longed to do ever since they first saw him, buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stroked it, and so doing, walked with him. I am fortunate to have both of my parents alive, and recently on my last trip to California, we all got together as a family. My parents, me and my brothers, our spouses, our kids. And it has been our tradition in our family to, on the last night we we were together, uh, to get in a circle and share our prayer requests, share what's going on, and to minister to each other. This last time, some vulnerable things were shared and uh, about some hardships that we were going through and what my family was going through. And it was the first time in a long while where I saw my father cry. I think that's the only the second time in my entire life where I've seen my father cry. The other time was when I was a young kid. His brother, my uncle, passed away at the age of 40 which is about my age now. And I remember, telling, I remember him telling me how tragic it was that his brother, my uncle, died at such a young age. He continued to talk about what a great brother and son he was. But what really struck me and stayed with me were his talking points. He would go on to explain that he was a good brother and son, not because he helped the rest of the family so much, and not because He was generous and kind. He was a good brother and son because he was one who took care of himself. He never asked for help. He was not a burden on anybody. And as a kid, I can remember my dad trying to relay something important. And my takeaway, for better or for worse, was it defined for me what it means to be a good person, a good son, a good husband, a good friend. The message received was that a good person is someone who is self-sufficient, someone who's independent. I did not want to be a burden on anybody else. My life rule became, don't be needy. Don't ask for help. Don't be an inconvenience. And it's taken a long time to try to unlearn that. When we see Jesus seeking out the comfort of his friends, taking his most intimate companions in the middle of the night in a garden 
looking for help, I think I'm given permission to do the same. Jesus entered into humanity as one who was utterly helpless and completely dependent upon his parents for food and shelter. Here in the garden, we see him in weakness and in need. Stay awake with me. Help me. You see, our culture reinforces the notion that if we're going to be someone to amount to who amounts to much of anything, then we have to be strong and self-sufficient. We are, progr- we are programmed to think that dependence on others, that weakness and vulnerability is a liability and should be avoided at all costs. But here in the garden, we see Jesus looking for a shoulder to lean on. We see him craving companionship, support, comfort. We see Jesus in his flesh, in his weakness. He was sinless, and yet he asked for help. That seems very human of him. I think that gives us permission to do the same. That's hard, isn't it? When we get together and ask each other how we're doing, what's the answer we always want to fall back on? I'm fine. I'm fine. We're always fine. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be an inconvenience. We are tempted to bottle it up and keep our problems to ourselves. Yes? I know I do. But if Jesus can wear his emotions on his face, then I too can say, I am sad and lonely. Lay your hands on me so that I can feel that you are there and let us walk like that. Okay. So Jesus staggered. How does that give me strength? How do you draw strength from someone who seems to be losing it? Well, we can when we understand that such staggering was for us. The writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And again, he was made like us in every respect that he can be a faithful and merciful high priest, and it is only because he suffered and tempted that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christianity does not quite give us the answer as to why God allows us to struggle and stagger, but it gives us a person who staggers with us. Author Trevin Wax says of Jesus, There in the midst of Jesus' own grief and sorrow, we see God with us and believe that he is able somehow to take our burdens upon himself and deliver us from our despair. He is not distant from our pain. He understands our suffering because Jesus Christ, God in human form, suffered. End quote. I love this. God does not cheer us from the sidelines. 
God is not oblivious as to what we're going through. God came all the way down. He entered the middle mile and he ran with us. Because Jesus took on flesh, he gets us. He gets us. He understands every single scope of temptation and trial that we face. There is no grief too low that we can't bring it to him. There is no pain so severe that we need to minimize it. And there is no temptation too strong that is outside of his sympathy. He gets us because he is us. He's one of us, meaning we can be honest and tell the truth and tell Jesus and others how we just can't take it anymore, how we just want to give up. You want to give up? So did Jesus. You feel all alone, betrayed, afraid? So did Jesus. Perhaps you're here suffering with immense physical pain. It's keeping you from concentrating and doing your work. Perhaps you struggle emotionally. You feel stuck with where you are in life. Maybe God forsaken. Feeling God forsaken? Yeah, Jesus gets that too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry on the cross was that was uttered on the outside was not contrary to what was really going on in the inside. He was not putting on a show. And if Christ knows what it's like to experience that, and if Christ knows what it's like to understand panic and anxiety to the point of sweating blood, then we can never accuse Jesus that he just doesn't get it. God came all the way down to run with us. How does Jesus give us strength? First, we draw strength when we see that Jesus staggered. Second, we draw strength when we see that Jesus finished the race. Jesus finished the race. Well, what was the race Jesus was on? He started his race when he came into real space and real time. The accounts of Jesus' life in the four Gospels are certainly more than his death. These accounts are quite important as they demonstrate that not only did he have to die for us, but that he had to live for us as well. With his life, he utterly fulfilled all righteousness, obeying the entire law as it was truly intended, loving as we ought to love, living as we ought to live. Jesus became righteous in our place. You see, Jesus came all the way down, not only to run with us, but also to run for us. He lives the righteous life we were meant to live in order to put that record into our account. And then as the hour to drink the cup approached in the garden, Jesus came across his greatest challenge. Would he drink the cup? Would Jesus die the death that we were meant to die? 
in our place? This was the culmination of his test. This is the hardest part of his race. And it is here in the garden that Jesus asked God not once, but three times. He begs, Abba, Father, if it is possible, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. I don't want it. This cup set before Jesus is not any cup. It is a particular kind of cup with a particular kind of poison. The Old Testament prophets referenced this cup of judgment. It was known as the cup of staggering. It referred to the undiluted wrath of God being poured out. And whoever drank this cup had to drink it all, all the way down, down to the dregs. If you've ever brewed coffee the old-fashioned way, then you know you want to drink coffee from the top of the pot, yes? While it's still hot. Perhaps it's fresher when you first take it out, but really, it's because you want to avoid the bottom of the pot, where you have all those nasty coffee grinds. The bottom is where you have, to ha where you have all the remnants, the pulp, the gunk, that you just don't want to drink. The cup set before Jesus is an utterly bitter cup, and he has to drink it all the way down, down to the dregs. You see, Jesus is not merely being asked to be a sin substitute for me, but also for you, and for you, and for you. Jesus is not merely being asked to be a substitute for any average human being, but also for the worst of human beings. As one author put it, it isn't that he dies as an innocent among thieves. He dies as the worst sinner among them. The worst thief, the worst adulterer, the worst liar, the worst wife beater, the worst child abuser, the worst murderer, the worst criminal, Jesus swallows all of it, drinks all of it down, and in doing so, draws into himself the full force of humanity's hatred for God. He becomes our hatred for God. He becomes our evil. He becomes all our injustice. He becomes sin. He is every Pilate and Pharaoh he is every Herod and Hitler, every Caesar and every Judas, every racist, every act of terror, and every chemical bomb. All our greed, all our violence, he becomes all of it. End quote. Jesus asked his father, Abba, Father, if it is possible, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Jesus asked three times. He was denied three times because there was no other way. There was no plan B. This cup set before Jesus is his cup to drink and his alone. It's his burden to bear. It requires his flesh. It requires his blood. It is his cross. 
And begging to, after begging to tap out, after wanting to throw in the towel, what kept him going? What kept him in the race? What pushed him over the edge so that he would take the cup and drink it all down? The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? What joy can possibly exceed the anguish of this bitter cup? It's the joy of us coming into his family. It's the joy of removing all bitterness so that we can become adopted into his family. He wants us to enjoy his dad like the way he enjoys his dad. He wanted to give us the status as God's kids so that we can relate to God as our father. He prays on his last night. I do not merely pray for these disciples here, but also for those who will believe in me through their message, meaning us. On the last night, our Lord Jesus thought of us. And what does he pray for? That they may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Those two words, even as, should not be glanced over. Jesus' desire, his last wish before going to the cross, was that we would know his Father loves us even as he loves Jesus. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Do we know God as our Father? Does that comfort us in the midst of not knowing when our next paycheck is coming? Does that strengthen us when our family is coming apart? Does that give us resolve in the midst of our addictions? God came all the way down. He ran with us and he ran for us and he finished the race. He would not stop until he achieved the prize, until the joy set before him was won. He would not stop until we became God's kids, until he became our older brother. He would ensure that, that we can cry out to God in the most intimate of ways and address his father in the same way he does. Abba. We've got an older brother like that. God came all the way down. He ran with us, and he ran for us. I myself have an older brother, and one of the most memorable moments with my brother was on my first day at school. It was the night before I started kindergarten. I never went to preschool, and I was born in a home which at the time spoke exclusively Korean. And so the night before my first day of kindergarten, I was terrified. 
How was I supposed to know where to catch the bus and when to get off? How was I supposed to know where my classroom was and when and how to get back home? And it was a dreadfully long night. The next morning, I started tearing up in front of my dad. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But my dad comforted me. He told me to look at my older brother. Steve, look at Peter. He's been through it before, and he's okay. He knows what he's doing, and he loves you, and he's going with you. And when you ride the bus, he's going to ride with you, and he's going to meet up with you after school, and he's going to bring you back home. And then my dad looked at Peter and told him, now take care of your brother. Make sure you bring him back home safely. And my older brother nodded. And when I looked at my older brother, I knew at that moment, I just knew that everything was going to be okay. Later that day, you know what happened? On the bus ride home, I fell asleep on the bus, and my older brother just got off the bus and left me there. <laughs> and so after dropping off all the other kids, the bus driver found me on the back of the bus like, what are you doing here? And so he drove me back home. And as the bus approached my home, I saw my family outside waiting for me. My mom had an anxious, worried look on her face. And then I looked at my older brother, and he had his head down in shame like he let everybody down. And I just smiled. I knew that my older brother always had good intentions. But you know what the gospel says? We've got an older brother who not only had the best intentions, who not only entered the race to run the middle mile with us, he went further than any of us could go. He finished the race for us. He would never ask us to run the race alone. He would never ask us to run a race that he himself has not finished already. We are Abba's kids. Jesus, our older brother, finished the race. There is absolutely no way no stinking way he was going to return to his father without his brothers and sisters. He drank the cup. What devotion. What affection. What security. What strength. What love. We've got an older brother like that. God came all the way down. And he ran with us, and he ran for us.